Oh, Father, use this time today as we gather to make us more like Christ. Teach us, O Lord, with your word today. May it accomplish your work in our lives in making us more like Jesus, humbling us, encouraging us, strengthening us, convicting and correcting us. Lord, you know what our hearts need. You know what we need. And we pray that your word would be the means through which those things are met, those needs are met. We pray for our children, for those who are inside the womb and outside the womb. We pray for um, their salvation, Lord. We pray that in your time, the seeds that are being planted today will bear a rich, fruitful harvest for the glory of Christ. And now through the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, grant us understanding of your word that we may believe and obey as you would have us do. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to John chapter 8. We'll keep going through John chapter 8 today. We're going to be looking at verses 33 to 36 as we continue in our study of John. The United States was founded on the ideals of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We're familiar with that phrase. And in fact, we probably love that phrase. I would say that if I were to ask you guys, what do you think of that? You'd say, yeah, those things are ideal. I, I, I love the ideals there. We're a people who love liberty. And liberty is, is freedom. We, we love freedom. Americans value and they boast greatly in their freedom. I think at one time probably more so than they do now. I don't think anyone can deny that the basic freedoms that were granted in the Constitution have been under fire lately, particularly in California, where criminals have been let out of jail because of COVID-19, but they're threatening to put pastors and Christians in jail just for gathering with their churches. They're not issuing that threat to any other, any other community, any other kind of business, just churches, just Christians. And this is entirely opposed to the very concept of freedom of religion, which is found in the First Amendment of the Constitution. Now, political freedom is, is a good thing, it's not a guaranteed thing in God's universe. There are nations where there is no political freedom, but it is a good thing in theory, but more so in practice, obviously. But even better than political freedom, as much as we love political freedom, the one thing that's better than that is spiritual freedom. If you have true spiritual freedom, there is no political opposition that can bind you or restrict you. If you live in a country in which there is no political freedom, but you have spiritual freedom, you have a freedom that can never, ever be taken away from you. But if you live in a country that has political freedom, but you don't have spiritual freedom, well, the, the little freedom that you have, it can be taken away from you. 
So Americans, we, we love freedom, and we love it so much that we call our country the land of the free. I actually believe that the argument could be made that the human soul craves freedom. But as Christians, when we're talking about freedom, every definition that we have has to come from Scripture, including when we're talking about freedom. How does the Bible define freedom? And that's, that's exactly uh, the question that, uh, that we can be asking today because Jesus is going to talk about that in the passage that we've come to. Jesus is going to claim to have the ability to not only set people free, but to set them free indeed. Now, John chapter 8 um, has highlighted this confrontation. It, it's recorded this, this lengthy confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees that took place at the Feast of Booths. In fact, this confrontation goes back to toward the beginning of chapter 7. But the debate in this chapter has really flowed out of Jesus' statement that he is the light of the world and the promise that whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's, that's what we saw back in verse 12. And everything since then flows out of that statement. From there came a slew of insults from the Pharisees and some responses from Jesus. The, the Pharisees revealing their, their confusion. And then surprisingly came some conversions. That's what we saw in our last study, that there were some conversions. There were some true conversions, but there were also some false conversions. Some believed in Jesus, and they were saved. Others simply believed Jesus, and they remained dead in their sins. For these false converts, those who had just maybe believed a few things that he had said, but didn't believe in Jesus, Jesus did not offer them any kind of assurance. If he gave them any kind of assurance, if he gives a false convert any kind of assurance, all he can give them is false assurance. Well, that's not loving. So Jesus didn't give them any false assurance. Instead, what he did is he offered them something better. He offered them something of, of an encouragement to take the next step and to do more than just believe him, to, to believe maybe some of the things that he was saying, but to believe in him. He said, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Now, we're going to see how these people respond, how these false converts respond to this promise of truth and freedom. It's a, it's a very stunning response, really, but it underscores the main point of the passage that we're going to be looking at today, which is that truth and true freedom are only found by believing in and abiding in Jesus Christ. So having laid out the difference between true and false disciples, the difference being abiding in His Word, continuing in His Word, not walking away from His Word. So having laid out this difference... The people respond in what can only be described as shocking fashion. So we continue in verse 33. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? 
How obvious, how apparent is it to you that these people are just beyond being confused? I don't even think we have a word to describe exactly how confused these people are. Because these are people who grew up in Jewish households where they were instructed to educate their kids or remind their kids and to go to these ceremonies and, and these, these, these feasts, right? Where they would be reminded of how God did what? Freed them, freed their forefathers from slavery to the Egyptians, a slavery that lasted 400 years. 400 years. That, that would be roughly 10 generations. It's an enormous amount of time spent in slavery. Consider how long America has been a nation. How long has America been a nation? Roughly 250 years. We, we still have another 150 years to go to be enslaved as long as the Hebrew people were to the Egyptians. But that wasn't the only time that the Israelites were enslaved. If you go through the book of Judges, you find that they were enslaved at least seven times just in the book of Judges alone. You know, one generation after another, all refusing to abide. Every one of them refusing to remain faithful for long to God. And so God would allow them to become enslaved to the gods that they worshipped, the false gods that they worshipped. And then he'd raise up a judge to free them, returning them to faithful service, only for them to fall back to their old ways before long. Seven times they were enslaved in the book of Judges. And this cycle just gets repeated over and over. And that's not all of the slavery that the Jews endured either. They were also taken into captivity by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, and the Syrians. And even as these people spoke, even as they're, they're, they're snapping back at Jesus saying, how can you say that we would be free? Even as they're saying this, if they would just reach into their pockets and get a coin and look at the, the face on that coin, that coin would have attested to the fact that they were currently under the occupation of the Roman Empire and that they were enslaved by Caesar, by Rome. All these factors and, and all these times that the Israelites had been enslaved make the answer that they give to Jesus here interesting. We'll just use that word. It's interesting. Their retort is clearly made from a position of severe ignorance. It's, it's just foolishness. It's foolishness that they would say this. And if you remember, foolishness is really what we should expect. Because if you'll remember, one of the aspects of walking in darkness is foolishness. So their response based on the fact that these people are walking in the darkness, their response is what we would expect from natural, unregenerate humanity. And it shows that mankind's greatest bondage is a bondage of which he's not even aware. These people remind us that it's possible for people to think that they are free and yet to be caught in severe, severe bondage. Now, if you remember a few weeks ago, we had somebody leave a Freedom from uh, Religious Foundation, uh, Freedom from Religion Foundation pamphlet on our, on our uh, community food exchange table. And as I was looking through it, one of the things that was made evident from what I read is that these people were in bondage to sin. They were walking in darkness. They were not free, even though they call themselves free thinkers. No, they were in bondage. To what? To sin. 
They're in bondage to sin, to darkness, to foolishness, to wickedness, misery, and to the wrath of God. It's part of walking in darkness, all those things. Just as it's possible for, person, for a person to have a false faith that doesn't save, it's possible for a person to think that they're free and yet be completely enslaved to sin. And is this not exactly what we see all around us? People who think they're free, but they're enslaved. They're enslaved to sin. They're in bondage to sin. Somebody thinks that they're finding new freedom as they explore this sin and and that sin. And the next thing you know, that sin is what defines the person. It overtakes them. It becomes their master. It takes dominion of them. All while the person maintains this illusion of being free. And if you dare to challenge the idea that they are enslaved, let me warn you, be prepared to face fierce resistance just as Jesus does here in this passage. As A.W. Pink notes, when faced with the reality that they are in bondage to sin and can only find freedom in Christ, the natural man will find it to be, quote, a truth that the natural man cannot tolerate. The very announcement of it stirs up the enmity within him. End quote. The sinner who walks in darkness will never acknowledge their enslavement. Instead, they'll boast all the more of their freedom, failing to recognize the way that sin enslaves and controls and reigns over every single one of their thoughts, words, and deeds. Is that not what these people to whom Jesus is speaking are demonstrating? And it's the same with people today. People today are no different than they were then. By nature, people are exactly the same. Born in bondage to sin. The condition of the natural man, the condition of somebody who has not believed in Jesus, is worse than they could possibly imagine. It's, it's even worse than many Bible-believing Christians understand. But Scripture is clear in teaching that from the moment of a person's existence, from the moment of conception, a person is under the dominion, the curse, of sin. Sin is our master, and by nature, we would not want it any other way. And the proof of this is exactly what we see here in this text. The way these people are rejecting Jesus, the light of the world, even as he stands shining in the darkness before them, inviting them to follow him and thereby walk in darkness no more. They're basically saying, we don't need to walk in the light. We're okay in the darkness, is what they're basically saying. Remember what Jesus said back in John 3.19, the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. So sin is the master of the unregenerate person. Sin is the owner, the master, has dominion over the person who does not believe in Jesus. Sin keeps them in the darkness and they wouldn't want it any other way. It's tragic. 
Because then instead of finding true freedom in Christ, they cry out from behind proverbial darkened jail cell doors of unbelief, saying, we're free. We've always been free. I don't need more freedom. Just like people today. Just like people today. The freedom that they so ignorantly boast of is nothing more than an illusion. They're deceived. They don't know the truth because truth and real freedom are only found by abiding in and believing in Jesus Christ. So being confronted with the idea that they would find true freedom in Jesus Christ would probably elicit a similar response to what we see here in this passage. If you were to go up to somebody at uh, you know, the, the Alderwood Mall today, and, and somebody who's unregenerate and say, you know, Jesus will set you free, they'd probably say something along the lines of, what are you talking about? I, I am free. I am, I'm already free. I don't need to be set free. Jesus' response to them, however, gives us one of the most important truths that a, a student of the Bible, that a Christian could ever, ever understand. One of the most important truths that's found in all of Scripture. Let's look at John chapter 8, verse 34. Jesus answers them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Why do people sin? Why do people sin? Because everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. These people are in bondage, in slavery to sin, and yet they lived under the illusion of autonomy, of freedom. The slavery that they experienced wasn't like other types of slavery that are outward and which would restrict people's actions. No, the slavery that these people were under was one of the heart. It was a slavery that shaped their desires. It's a slavery that, that shapes their, their, their thoughts, their affections, their will. And that's why Martin Luther called it the bondage of the will. What Jesus is describing here, friends, is humanity's condition by nature. Humanity's condition by nature is being a slave to sin. So why do people sin? Now, somebody might say, well, when people sin, it's an abuse of their freedom. After all, don't people do what they like? Uh, don't they pursue what gives them the most pleasure? Don't they go after what gives them the greatest sense of satisfaction? I mean, I guess these things are all true to a certain extent, but these answers, really what they do is they just uncover a deeper question. Instead of asking why people sin, the real question is, far more foundational than that. The real question is, why do people enjoy sin? Why do people like it? I mean, they do it because they like it. Well, okay, why do they like it? Why do we find joy in it? Why do we find pleasure in it? And the answer is because it is our nature to be slaves to sin. People just, people think so differently than God thinks. From our perspective, to restrain sin, to turn from it, to repent of it, is the antithesis of freedom. That's the natural man's understanding. If you are putting your sinful desires to death, you are restricting your freedom from their understanding. 
people think that to repent of sin is to deprive ourselves of the freedom to do whatever we want, as if the Christian life is one of deprivation. Friends, it is not. Let me be really clear about this with you guys today. The Christian life is not a life of deprivation. It's a life of freedom. Jesus is telling us that to be a true disciple is not to experience deprivation, but to experience freedom. See, the way that the world thinks is one way, but the life of a disciple demands that we start to see things a very different way from from God's perspective. See, the world's way of thinking starts with one very flawed premise. And that premise is this, that by nature, mankind is good. That mankind, by nature, is not fallen. That mankind, at worst, by nature, is morally neutral. Those are all lies. Those are all illusions. I mean, isn't that what people think? I mean, is that not what you hear if you turn on the TV, if you turn on uh, the radio? You know, we we hear it all over the place, that, that people are basically good. Follow your heart. The world's message, friends, is that by nature, it starts with this, that by nature we are good. One well-known apostate of the Christian faith even recently pointed out on Twitter that God says in his word that humanity is good back in Genesis chapter 1. It's a very interesting thing for him to say, and he did not take any correction to that, but his statement overlooks the reality that some things have taken place since Genesis 1, right? There have been some changes since Genesis 1, including, of course, the fall of humanity. Remember, mankind was not fallen in Genesis 1, but you get halfway through Genesis 3, and they are. Everything has changed midway through Genesis 3. When Adam fell into sin, here's what we have to understand. When Adam fell into sin, it didn't just affect Adam, and it didn't just affect Eve. It affected the whole universe. It affected, primarily, the whole human race, their offspring, This is what we call the doctrine of original sin. Now, when you hear that that term, original sin, you might think that it applies or or that it refers to uh, the first sin, uh, original sin. Uh, That's not what it refers to. Rather, that, that was the first sin, but the doctrine of original sin refers to the effect that the first sin had on humanity's nature. See, Adam and Eve's natures were changed. They were fallen, and a parent, and a, you know, a, a mom or dad can't pass on a nature to their children that they themselves do not have. They pass on the same nature to their children. Which is why the whole human race fell when they fell. Because their nature was passed on, their fallen nature was passed on to their offspring. This is what it means when we talk about original sin. This is what it means when we're talking about our enslavement to sin. But what this all shows us is that we aren't sinners because we sin. Rather, what it shows us is that we sin because we're sinners. Do you see the distinction there? We don't, we don't, uh, we don't uh, we become sinners because we sin. We sin because by nature we are sinners. We are sinners both by nature and by choice. And what that means is that when a person is left to themselves, 
were sinners. They are sinners. And they would not change that even if they could. Because we are, by nature, in bondage to sin, we sin. That's why people sin. Sin is our master, and we do what our master tells us to do. Philosophers, they'll refer to something called uh, free will. And I suppose that we'd better address that, uh, that subject while we're on this passage. Everybody does have free will, but only in a very certain, very restricted sense. We have free will in the sense that we can choose to stand up or sit down. We have free will in the sense that we could wear a white shirt or a red shirt or whatever color shirt we want. We have a free will in in that we can choose to drink soda pop or water. But what we cannot do by nature is avoid the corrupting factor of sin in everything that we do. Everything that we do by nature is tainted in one way or another by sin. And the fact that we, the people would argue against that and say, wait a minute, how, how could this or that not be, you know, pure? How, how can this or that be tainted by sin? Only shows us how ignorant we truly are of sin. We, even as Christians, even the most mature Christian, only is starting to begin to understand the depths of the corrupting factor of sin in all that we do. It was R.C. Sproul who once said, quote, Every person who's ever been a Calvinist that I know of in history has affirmed without reservation that we are moral agents. We are volitional creatures. God has made every one of us with a mind, with a heart, with affections, and with a will. We have a will, which is a faculty of choosing, and in the fall, as desperate as the fall is and as corrupt as we become, we don't stop willing, end quote. But the problem, he goes on to note, is that, quote, even though the will is free from external coercion, from being forced to do something it doesn't want to do by outside agencies, what we say is that the will, though it is free to do what it wants, is in bondage at the same time, end quote. So notice that he said that our our will is free from external coercion and from external influence. That's because what we understand is that the will is bound internally, inside of us. In other words, because we are by nature slaves to sin, every free act that we commit is within the parameters set by our nature, and our nature is sinful. Now, no philosopher would say that, uh, you know, we're we're free to be whatever we want. You're not free to to become a a fish, for example. You might uh, try to be a fish. You might want to be a fish. But if you try too hard to be a fish, you'll be dead within a couple minutes because you can't breathe underwater. That's not within your nature. So you might say that we're as free as somebody in a prison cell. Now, that might sound funny to you, but think about it. What can a person do within a prison cell? Uh, They can do all kinds of things within a prison cell. But doing things outside of the prison cell isn't one of the things that they can do inside a prison cell, if that makes sense. They're restrained by nature, by the bars of the prison. So we have to understand that we're not only slaves to sin by nature, but we're slaves to sin by choice. People are not as evil as they can possibly be. Take, take somebody who's murdered five million people. Could they have murdered five million and one? Sure. 
so they could be more wicked than they were. But if you watch the life of even the most mature Christian, what you find is that even a mature Christian will struggle against sin. Even the most mature Christian will struggle with temptation, choosing, choosing against it. And the flesh is so weak, even the most mature Christians. That's why Paul would write in Romans chapter 7, verses 15 and 19, he says, For what I am doing I do not understand, for I am practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very... For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. So let's go back to the idea that we do what we want, and we do what we like. Now, it gets flipped when a person becomes a Christian. So somebody who's not a Christian would be saying the opposite that Paul says here. But let me ask you this. Do you think Paul was a mature Christian at the time when he wrote this? I'd say he was. I'd say he was. And, and yet, that didn't diminish the struggle that he had with temptations to sin. If anything, he just had a greater awareness of the temptations and the weakness of the flesh as he matured as a Christian. And here's where it becomes very easy to despair as a Christian. Here's where it becomes very frustrating to become more and more sanctified as God conforms us more and more to the image of Christ and as we become more and more um, sanctified in our walk. It's not so much that we have fewer desires to sin, but what happens is that our awareness of sin, our awareness of the temptations, our awareness of the difficulty in breaking away from sin grows faster than our ability to mortify sin. Even though both Scripture and our experience teach us to avoid sin, we still face these intense periods of temptation sometimes, don't we? We still face the temptation to, to play around with it and to somehow justify it in our minds. It usually starts out kind of subtly, with us thinking that, you know, it's not going to do a whole lot of harm. It's, it's not a big deal if I do this or if I do that. It's, I'll, I'll be, able, I'll be the, the, the slave master, and sin will be my, my slave. It'll be my servant. But actually what ends up happening is the very opposite. You come into sin thinking you're going to be the, the, ser, the, the slave owner of it, but you end up becoming the slave, and the sin becomes the master. That's how sinful actions become sinful habits. Sin always initially appears harmless and powerless until it wraps us up and entangles us, proving to be absolutely impossible to break free from on our own strength and our own will or our own volition. William Barclay uh, explains how this process takes a person over to the point that, quote, man who sins does not do what he likes. He does what sin likes. So far from doing what he likes, the sinner has lost the power to do what he likes. He is a slave to the habits, the self-indulgences, the wrong pleasures which have mastered him, end quote. See, friends, apart from Christ, nobody's free. Everybody 
is in bondage to sin. Everyone is a slave to sin. We are moral agents whose moral choices are all tainted, limited, and enslaved by the, chainful, or the, the chains of sinful nature. Even the best that we have to offer by nature is corrupted by sin's power and influence. We're sinners both by nature and by choice, just like these people that Jesus is speaking to. The news about our natural condition is terrible news. But God offers wonderful news, the news that he sent his son into the world to free us from what? From sin's bondage. From sin's bondage. People have misunderstood the idea of, of Christ bringing freedom throughout history. These people thought that he was coming to free them, for, that the Messiah was coming to free them from Roman opposition or Roman occupation. But when Jesus, very early on in his earthly ministry, was, was given the opportunity to read from the scriptures in the temple on the Sabbath, do you remember what he read? He read from Isaiah 61. He said this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, and to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And Luke tells us, and he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That might be the shortest sermon that's ever been preached. The shortest exposition of scripture that you could possibly find. But what's he saying there? When he's talking about freedom, what's he talking about? Because they're still under Roman occupation. He's talking about a spiritual liberation. He's talking about being freed from spiritual oppression. Shortest sermon ever preached, but the point is that Jesus came to set sinners free spiritually. Free from sin. Free from bondage to sin. And for those who will receive him in faith, for those who don't simply believe him, but believe in him, huge difference there, as true disciples, there is true freedom. The person who's convinced that being a true disciple of Jesus involves deprivation or denial of freedom has only demonstrated that they don't understand the slavery that they're in. And they don't understand true freedom. The only reason that a person would not want the freedom that Jesus offers is if they don't understand it. So it doesn't prove that they're a free thinker. Rather, it proves that, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, it proves that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. When somebody thinks that they're already free, that verse is talking about them. As A.W. Pink notes, quote, Happy the one who is conscious of such bondage, for this is the first step toward liberty. End quote. So the person who refuses to believe in Christ will continue to be a slave to sin and will face God's just and holy wrath one day when they stand before him in judgment. These people that Jesus is addressing are just too proud to understand or to believe what Jesus is saying. 
How long do they abide in his word? They're already questioning him. One sentence later, he says, your true disciples, if you abide or continue in my word, they're already saying, no, we don't believe you. The next sentence, that's how insane sin is. They're just so proud. Because all their lives, they'd been taught and they, they had believed that their heritage, their ancestry was what guaranteed their salvation. The reason, therefore, that they didn't see their need for freedom was because they were descendants of Abraham. That's what they, that's what they defer to. That's their argument. They thought that that meant something. They thought that that guaranteed their salvation. It doesn't. And so Jesus addresses that in what he says next. Let's look at verses 35 and 36. Jesus continues saying, The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Now Jesus is addressing their, the fact that they had, they had argued that they were descendants of Abraham. And so he's talking, he's referring back to the story of Abraham. We know that Abraham had many children, and yet not all of his children had all the blessings and privileges of being Abraham's children. God had promised Abraham and Sarah a child, but if you remember, they grew impatient and they took matters into their own hands. And since Sarah's womb was persistently barren, Sarah had Abraham create a child with her slave, Hagar. Uh, we read her pleading with Abraham in Genesis 16:2, where she says to him, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And then we're told, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now the child that Abraham has with Hagar was named Ishmael. Ishmael spent the first part of his life in Abraham's household, enjoying all of the blessings and all of the privileges of being Abraham's son. And yet Ishmael wasn't the son of promise. He wasn't the son that God had promised. And thus... The time came in Genesis chapter 21 when Abraham was instructed by God to cast Hagar and Ishmael out of his household. And in the same way, sinners, Jew and Gentile alike, live for a time in God's world where the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous, the just and the unjust. And yet, just like the time was coming for Ishmael to lose the blessings and privileges of living in Abraham's house, the time was coming for these people to whom Jesus was speaking to lose the blessings and privileges of being Abraham's children because they're still slaves to sin. So who did keep the blessings and the privileges of being Abraham's son? Isaac did. Isaac kept all of the blessings and privileges. Isaac was the child of grace. Isaac was the fulfillment of God's promise for the offspring. Isaac stayed in Abraham's house and he was never cast out. Just as Ishmael was cast out with no hope of returning to Abraham's household, all who oppose Christ, all who will not believe in Christ as a true disciple, will be cast out of God's world regardless of their ancestral connection to Abraham. 
That's why it's so important to believe in Jesus. See, the gospel is not that you can be saved by your heritage. The gospel has never been that you would be saved because of your parents. That's never been the gospel. The gospel is that fallen man can be reconciled to God by believing in Christ. The gospel is that fallen man can find true spiritual freedom by entering God's spiritual family by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. The person who won't believe in Jesus, the person who won't abide in his word or continue in his word as a true disciple, not only isn't free, but they are in bondage. But the person who does believe in Jesus, who does abide in his word, and is a true disciple, is not only free, but they are free indeed. That's like underlining free, like, like capitalizing it. It's a different kind of freedom than they understood. Now you have to understand that there are several senses in which a person experiences this freedom in Christ. There are many things that a person is freed from in Christ. One of the most important senses of freedom is freedom from ignorance. Freedom from ignorance. We've talked about how walking in darkness entails ignorance and, and foolishness. It's an ignorance which prevents a person from understanding spiritual truths. We understand from the world around us that someone who is ignorant is very limited in terms of what they are able to do. We understand that the less knowledge, the less understanding a person has, the fewer opportunities they will have to prosper. And this is why in our culture we, we value education so highly because we understand that education opens doors of opportunity for people to advance and to prosper within a given society. And in the same way, let's consider that there's a connection between abiding in God's word, that is in knowing the scriptures and remaining in the scriptures, and being free indeed. Just as a person who's untrained and uneducated cannot prosper in the physical world, it's even more true that someone who does not abide, does not continue in the Scriptures, and thus doesn't know the Scriptures, cannot prosper spiritually. If a person doesn't understand the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith, starting with the fact that God is holy and therefore must punish sin, and that we're all sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God, if a person can't understand that much, they will not see the need to come to Christ for salvation, and thus they will not come to Christ for salvation. They will remain lost in the darkness. They will remain spiritually ignorant, and thus in bondage to sin. Now you might say that man, uh, fallen man is spiritually ignorant both by nature and by choice. But by grace alone, Christ frees us from this ignorance. James Montgomery Boyce notes, quote, Freedom from ignorance is important because it is through a knowledge of spiritual truth that God saves people from sin, from themselves, and from Satan, end quote. So who gives spiritual understanding? God does. And only God can. He must illuminate our hearts. And that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, he says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. 
See, by God's grace, He unveils our hearts and gives us knowledge which enables our understanding of spiritual truth, which leads to our freedom, true spiritual freedom from bondage to sin. So truth sets us free from ignorance. If you've heard the truth, this is your experience. You're free from ignorance. You can say that there was a time in your life when you didn't understand, and then there was a time in your life when you did understand, when it started to all make sense. It's because God has shined the light of his grace in your heart, giving you an awareness and an ability to understand spiritual truth, usually starting with the fact that as a just and holy God, God must punish sinners, and that you, by nature, are a sinner in need of grace. But God never stops there. He reveals the truth of our condition only so that we understand the urgency of the cure. And Jesus is that cure. Jesus took our sin upon himself and placed his own righteousness upon, upon us. That's the cure. It, it took place at the cross. The cross is the cure. So this is the first sense in which we're freed. We're freed from ignorance, from, from foolishness. But the second sense in which we're set free is that we're set free from sin. We're set free, first of all, from sin's penalty, which, of course, is eternal damnation in hell. God sent Jesus to pay the cost of the sin of everyone who will believe in him. Every sin of every person who has savingly believed in Christ was cast upon Christ, a weight that only God could bear, a price that only God could pay. And as a result, we are freed from the penalty of sin. But as beautiful as that is and as wonderful as that is, that doesn't solve the problem of us being slaves to sin. And so he must go beyond that. And he does go beyond that to set us free. We have to understand that God not only sets us free from the penalty of sin, here's the important part for, for here and now, for where we are today. Jesus not only sets us free from the penalty of sin, but he also sets us free from the power of sin. Listen very carefully to Paul's words in Romans 6. He writes this in verses 11 to 14. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Here's the big part. Underline this part. For sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. Jesus not only removes the penalty of sin from us, but he removes the power of sin from us. See, through Christ, sin is no longer our master. It no longer has dominion over our thoughts, words, and deeds the way that it once did. It no longer has the ability to, to dictate exactly what we do. So Paul goes on to write, verses 16 to 18, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, 
you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Friends, what that means is that sin is no longer your master. Righteousness is. Christ is. In Christ, we are freed from spiritual ignorance and we are freed from sin. We're freed from sin's penalty and we're freed from sin's power, all with the promise that one day we'll be freed from sin's very presence. We're freed from sin's penalty, power, and one day from its presence. If by God's grace you have come to hate sin as you should, there is no sweeter promise than this. That one day you won't have to see and be around all the sin anymore. One day, one day you'll be removed from its presence. You don't have to see it anymore. If you have never believed in Christ in a saving manner, this is the freedom that God offers you through faith in Jesus Christ. Just as you wouldn't postpone accepting an offer of freedom if you have lived in a land in which you were daily enslaved to a cruel master who hated you and who ruled over your every movement, you must not postpone coming to Christ and receiving this gift of true freedom. If you've never believed in Jesus, you must understand that the fact that you are here today, even hearing this, is God giving you grace and mercy to even hear this offer of salvation, of freedom. But you must not put off accepting this offer because not only will it not be easier tomorrow, but you're not even guaranteed that tomorrow will come. But if you have been set free by Christ, if you have believed in him savingly and experienced the freedom that he brings, then you must know, friends, that there is so much work to be done. Paul said we become slaves of righteousness. We must do what God has instructed us to do. And part of that is carrying the good news to enslaved sinners. See, the reality of the fact is we haven't been set free to live our lives just however we want. That's not freedom. No, we've been set free for the sake of serving and pleasing God with our lives through faithful service unto our God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This, my friends, this is the truest and purest expression of freedom. To live all of life, not for the pleasures of this world, which just come and go, but to live all of life in obedience to God as a servant of God, for the glory of God. And so my prayer for you today is that you would know and experience this true freedom to the fullest. It is only found in Jesus Christ. Therefore, let us resolve to both believe in him and to abide in him, to continue in him no matter what comes, and to thereby bear much fruit for his glory. All 
in the freedom that Christ alone provides. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the gospel, the good news that Christ has come to set all who believe in him free. We thank you and we praise you for this freedom. Lord, help us use this freedom in the way that you would have us use it. That being to obey you, to live lives that are pleasing to you, and to be faithful to do what you have instructed us to do, including, of course, the Great Commission. Father, as we live in such a a dark and enslaved culture, we pray that you would open many eyes to see. We pray that you would unveil many hearts to see and understand who you are and who they are and therefore how desperately they need to believe in Christ. We pray that you would give us boldness and wisdom to share the gospel with people who are so enslaved to sin. Give us compassion. Give us patience when we're frustrated. And give us grace to do what you are pleased by. All for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.